All right, please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 2, please. Matthew, chapter 2. In Matthew, chapter 2, we come to our last prophecy of the Christmas season. Um, the title of our series throughout this Christmas season is It's Still okay to believe in Christmas. Uh, the big idea of the series is it takes faith to please God. Um, do you believe in the Christ of Christmas? Today, specifically from the text, do you believe in the Christ who humbled himself? Now, that's in our text, even though it's not stated, it is implied. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. All right, please finish this phrase for me. Jesus of Nazareth. Why don't we say Jesus of Bethlehem? That's where he was born. Well, there's great meaning behind his city of Nazareth that he's from, and this is in our text today. Now, Joseph used his sanctified common sense and figured out that when Herod was dead, of course, God told him to return to Israel, but then when he found out that his son was on the throne, he's like, well, maybe it's not safe to live in Bethlehem, so we'll just go and relocate to Nazareth as a family. And so that's what Joseph did. He, he relocated his family to a very obscure, out-of-the-way place, 55 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, as we look at this, this follows a, a completely different setup or a formula from what we've been looking at in our series. So typically, you would see, and this was... Um, fulfilled which was written by the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah. But this is not that way. This was fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. So there's not any one particular prophet that you could put quotation marks around this quote. Nor is there um, any reference to the quote in the Old Testament anywhere. You can't find that phrase. So does that mean that God made a mistake? Well, we know the Bible does not contain errors. Not even one, by the way, and the Bible never contradicts itself. So what is going on within the text? So today, what we want to look at is uh, this verse, Matthew 2.23, and then what it believes and or what it implies and what it doesn't imply. But today, we want you to walk away from Christmas Sunday believing in the Christ who humbled himself. So the prophecy does not imply certain things. So it does not imply that it is a direct quote from Scripture. So this is a completely different way through the prophets, plural, not through a prophet, but through all of the prophets. So your Old Testament, what Matthew is saying is this is something that would be taught all the way through scriptures. Do you remember Jesus after his resurrection on the road to a little town called Emmaus? He met two of his disciples. 
and he began with Moses and the prophets to explain unto them all the things concerning himself. And as they were walking, their heart burned within them as they reasoned uh, and listened to the things that he was sharing. And then when he broke bread with them, then their understanding was open. So when you read the Old Testament, read it with a foreshadowing of the person of Christ, but not always a direct statement about the Christ. So this is not intended to be a direct quote. So go back to chapter 2 with me and look at verse 5 just to see how it's a little bit different here. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And so we can turn to the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, and we can find that. Or if you go uh, back to um, chapter uh, 1 and look with me at verse uh, 22, you can see this. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying... And so we can find that one in the book of Isaiah. So this seems to indicate a general rather than specific Old Testament reference. Now, some people think, well, this means that Jesus was a Nazarite. Are you familiar that some people think Nazarite and Nazareth are the same thing? Does anyone think that? All right, so don't think that because they're completely different. Someone from Nazareth is not a Nazarite, all right? A Nazarite was a special vow that an Israelite could take, and they would abstain from any product of the vine. Grapes, raisins, um, wine, grape juice, anything like that, they would abstain from that. So Jesus was not a Nazarite. He did not abstain from alcohol. He made wine. He made uh, these things. And, of course, then at the Passover, uh, the Last Supper, he has the cup. And so it's not referring to the Nazarite vow that is here. Nor is it just a, a reference to an oral tradition. All right? So if you're familiar with Judaism at all, they have several writings other than the Old Testament. They have the Mishnah, um, and then they have all kinds of other writings, the Talmud, and these are the records of the oral traditions of the rabbis or the scribes. Well, this is not just an oral tradition in Christianity. It's not intended to be that at all. So Matthew is probably not citing a specific Old Testament verse or a text, but instead only referring to a general teaching of the Bible. And so a suggested rendering of his words might be, this was to fulfill the teaching of the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. How many of you have ever traveled cross-country? All right. How many of you have gone at least east, maybe into like Nebraska or Iowa, something maybe you've not gone all the way across the Mississippi to the other coast yet? Have you ever come across some little out-of-the-way towns? All right. So if you get off the major interstate, yeah, you can go for hours and hours sometimes be between towns. Um, I can remember, because I've done the cross-country travel several times, and when you hit that stretch just before and after Salt Lake City, you want to make sure you've got gas in your car, all right? Because you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you don't want to get lost. 
Now, one of my children was doing a cross-country trip, and they intentionally planned to avoid the major interstates, and they went through state highways and country roads, and um, they were sharing their GPS location with me, and um, I was looking at that quite often as the concerned parent, and I noticed their car had not moved in several hours. And I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere. And there's this like green little section on the map and it's like this national monument. And they had told me where they were going and the car stayed there for hours. And I was getting concerned. I was calling, there was no answer. And I was like, oh no, what has happened? Well, come to find out, they made it out to the national monument, but as they pulled off the, the shoulder of the road was muddy and soft and they got stuck. And so they were sacrificing floor mats and shoes and clothes and everything, sticking them under the wheel. They eventually got out and got them on their way. When they got back in cell phone range, they called me, hey, we're okay, but we didn't want to call you right away because we, we know that you worry. All right. So you know that there are some out-of-the-way places. I mean, we used to enjoy going up to Redwood National Park um, and the also Prairie Creek State Park. Uh, north of Trinidad, uh, California, used to be that there weren't any cell phone towers up there. And so we would go up there intentionally just to disconnect. And I remember coming back into cell phone reception one time and the, and, uh, the cell phone started just going ding, 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 ding. <laughs> I had like a hundred notifications. I was like, that's why we disconnected, all right? <laughs> just to leave it alone. Well, Nazareth is that kind of place. All right. I'm sure if they would have had cell phones during Jesus' day, there would not have been any cell phone reception there. It would have been an, an out-of-the-way kind of place. Probably uh, you would be fortunate to find it on a map. All right. So that would be kind of the obscurity of Nazareth. And perhaps that's why Joseph chose such a place, because he knew that Herod and Herod's son might be out to kill. Jesus. And so he chose an out-of-the-way, obscure place. But Nazareth seems to be more than just obscure. It seems to note a place that is despised. So please take your Bibles and go over with me to the Gospel of John for just a moment. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, uh, we're finding out that Jesus is calling his disciples and they're, they're learning who he is and um, being introduced and so forth. And so Philip goes to find his own brother, okay? And the reaction is this, when he tells him that it's Jesus of Nazareth, okay? Um, Verse, uh, let's see, it's in the 40, 43. The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now look at verse 46. And Nathanael said unto him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, Philip's invitation was, come and see. So Nazareth was not just an obscure place, but it was almost like this place where 
it's got a bad reputation if you're from there. Maybe like your country bumpkins. They're from Podunkville, all right? Uh, they're ignorant people. They're, they're, they're the low life, you, you know, and you kind of make fun of those people, all right? Um, so this is kind of the idea that is there. So if you're from Nazareth, uh, you might say that you're in the lowest rank of the social tier. You're at the bottom of importance within the nation. And so it is a place that is despised by other people. It's a despised place. Now, some people think that here this phrase, um, Nazareth, is from a root Hebrew word, netzer, which means a branch. Uh, how many of you know that one of the names of Jesus is the branch. You know that? Okay. So we know at Christmas time we sing uh, Emmanuel, all right, God with us, and uh, the Word of God, the bright and the morning star, the Son of David, so forth. But one of the names of Jesus is the branch. And so they see uh, a Semitic uh, relationship there in the uh, a semantic relationship there in the origin of the word. And so they're saying, well, this is what it could imply is to the prophecies of Christ being the branch of David, that God was going to cut the nation down to a stump. And then out of that would grow one primary predominant branch that would receive the preeminence and the glory, and that would be Jesus. That seems to be at least plausible but it doesn't seem to really fit what they're trying to teach here. All right, so as we were saying, Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem. That would imply the kingly overtones being born in the city of David. And so he is a despised person. So let's just walk through the Old Testament and see how the prophets in general, not any one prophet, but the prophets in general, looked and prophesied about Jesus and how the people of Israel would look at him. So let's go to the book of Isaiah for just a moment, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is right before the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 2, you see the concept of like the branch, for he shall grow up before him like a tender plant, like a root out of dry ground. But notice this, he hath no form nor comeliness that when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should, what, desire him. So possibly the physical appearance of Jesus was not attractive. It's not like it was for King Saul the people of Israel looked at him. He was tall. He was strong. He was young. He was strapping. All right? Not when you looked at the Messiah, per se. But now, specifically, verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. What does it mean to be despised? All right. Well, if you're an Eagles fan, you despise Cowboy fans. All right. Um, despise means that you have a hatred for something. 
So Jesus was the kind of person that people looked at him and they despised him, maybe even a little bit of hatred in their heart, rejected of men. Isn't that fascinating? I find this fascinating as a pastor and a preacher. That the Son of God, the best preacher there ever was, people still rejected his sermons. I find that mind-boggling. Even Jesus himself was amazed at the hardness of heart and the unbelief of the Israelite people. Sometimes we can just sit and listen to a sermon and it, we have an impervious heart and uh, it's like water off a of concrete, just goes right to the drain and we forget about it, all right? And so here people are rejecting him. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, not that I think Jesus was a manic depressive, all right? But Jesus experienced sorrow in life and he knew what grief was. Now, it is possible after the age of 12, we, we don't find a reference to Joseph uh, in the New Testament beyond that point. It's possible that Joseph died and he knew the grief of lo losing a parent. He knew the grief of being rejected and ostracized by his family. Do you remember the gospel account where he was out on his mission preaching? And he had the large crowds, and the large crowds sent a messenger into Jesus and said, your brothers and sisters are outside looking for you. They're here to take you home. They think you're a lunatic. They think you've lost your mind. You've gone crazy. What kind of grief and sorrow would that cause to be rejected by your siblings, even your mom at that point? Right? So he was acquainted with grief, um, a man of sorrows. So if you have sorrow in your heart, Jesus knows about what it is to have sorrow in the heart. So these are how people view him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There's no respect. There's no honor. He came unto his own and his own received him not. So this is what it means, generally speaking, that someone from Nazareth is a humbled person, someone that you wouldn't look up to with respect, that you wouldn't look up to with honor, that you would actually despise them, that you would not want them to be your leaner, your your leader. And so Nathaniel replied when his brother told him, he said, Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of that place? You've got to be kidding me. So Matthew was right to remind his readers that the prophets foretold the Messiah would not be honored by his people, but be, would be despised. And so this was the viewpoint of anybody that was from Nazareth. So we saw... Uh, the record in John chapter 1, verse 46, we see the record in Isaiah 53, verse 3. Uh, we see it in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 7. We're not going to turn there, uh, but you can look it up later. Even in the Psalms, Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, is what we call a messianic song. 
uh, one that foretold or foreshadowed the, the sufferings of Jesus. Talks about his sufferings on the cross and how when they passed by, they would revile him, um, that they would stare upon his injuries, his bones would be gazing out. Talks about the suffering of the Messiah. Well, what is the Messiah suffering like that for? Why is the Messiah a man of sorrows? Why is the Messiah someone who's despised and rejected? Now, I don't try to put too much stock into all of the news headlines that I read, but occasionally you'll come across the news headline about um, someone being against Christmas. And they don't want the word Christmas or Christ to be referenced at all. It's not a Christmas tree, it's a holiday tree, blah, 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 right? All right, well, the general point behind that is the animosity of some people. It does, not just in America, it's all over the world. But some people reject, despise Jesus. They do. It's just out there. He still loves them. He still died for them. But here it is, the fact. Jesus Christ humbled himself. And this is really the meaning behind this passage. So let's go over to the book of Philippians chapter 2 for just a moment. And we'll close out in this text by making an observation and then a few applications to our life. Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, we specifically want to read 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, what does the prophecy imply? Well, it implies that Christ humbled himself, and he was despised and rejected of men. He died and suffered on the cross for us. So, let this kind of mind, the mind of the incarnation, the mind of the Son of God who came into this world, let this mind be in you, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Listen, if someone were to walk up to you today and fall down at your feet and start kissing your feet and call you God, you might grab them by the collar and make them stand up and say, you got the wrong person. All right? Well, when Thomas grabbed the feet of Jesus and fell down in front of him, he said, my Lord and my God, Jesus Christ accepted that worship. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, who being in the very form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. No one shares God's glory. So Jesus Christ is God. Now verse 7 but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So, perhaps in God's heart, it wasn't just enough to become a human being. Because, I mean, be honest, some human beings can live very sumptuously and pompously, all right? It's just pomp and circumstance. I mean, 
they know how to live, all right, in, in the greatest of comforts and the greatest of honor, and uh, they make a human being look pretty majestic, all right? So it wasn't just enough to come into this world as a man. He came into this world as the lowest of men. Living in the most obscure little country village, place of ridicule, but beyond that, despised as an individual, rejected, not respected, not honored. So he, he comes as a servant, the lowest form of life, the lowest form of human existence. You know, different cultures have caste systems, and servants are at the bottom. And they're really not even viewed sometimes as a person, but rather more property. So this tells us the mind of Jesus, how humble he was to come into this earth for us. And so then it says, in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Think of the exaltation of what heaven was like. To command angels. And they are ministering spirits to God. What angels are. They're angelic servants that do God's bidding. And when he gives a command, it's like a lightning bolt. They go out and they do it and they come back. It's done. What else? And they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And they sing the praises and the majesty of God. They're in the throne room of God. And they're there with those beautiful streets of gold. And Jesus left that wonderful place, adoration of worship, honor, respect, comes to this earth to be spit upon, to be struck in the face, to have his beard pulled out, to have crowns dabbed into a skull. Think of what Jesus gave up for you and for me. He was willing to humble himself. It says here that he became obedient unto death, but not just any death. I mean, it's a common thing. People die, right? And there are other people that died because they were obedient. I mean, you think of soldiers who were willing to lay their life on the line and obey their commanding officer, and they paid the price. Well, yes. So it, it's just not this, it's just not being obedient unto death, but the death of the cross, the most humiliating, excruciating, publicly embarrassing form of death that you could possibly suffer. Jesus was a Nazarene. He was despised, he was rejected. Jesus did all of that for you. You see, he humbled himself so that you could be exalted. Paul says in Romans that we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Jesus took all of that shame upon himself so that you could be honored. Behold, what manner of love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We've been honored, we've been exalted because Jesus humbled himself. 
This is what it means for Jesus to be called a Nazarene. Humble himself and he died for you. Will you today humble yourself? God, your view on things is correct. I'm a human being that has offended you, has sinned against you, and I cannot save myself. I cannot earn it, I cannot deserve it. So I change my mind. That means you repent. And I will embrace what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. I will trust in his humiliating death. that he was rejected for me, that he was despised for me, that he suffered for me. I will humble myself and put my faith in Christ. And the good news is if you do that today, God will save you. He'll exalt you to the position of being the son of, a son of God. And you'll know that marvelous love, that amazing grace. So that's a Christmas invitation that stands for every person that's in the room today. But in the final closing application to those who've already made that decision, maybe the Christmas season is a good time to talk about humility because we sometimes in our family life we get tense with one another when we're asked to do certain things and sometimes we say no, causes stress in the relationship. And we can get frustrated with one another. Well, if we take the mind of Christ and let that mind be in us, we'll realize that he was a servant. He surrendered all of his rights. And he did his father's will perfectly. And he did it in love. So instead of frustration, anger, you can do it in love. You can pitch in around the activities of the home but beyond that in your local church you can humble yourself in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in the lord walk humbly not exalting yourself you don't have to be in charge you can submit yourselves to one another in the fear of god first corinthians 13 you can love your brothers and sisters in the lord by being kind being patient, long-suffering, remembering no wrongs, all those wonderful descriptions in 1 Corinthians 13. We can become obedient to authority in our life, our government, our employer, our spiritual leaders in our lives, spiritual leaders in your home, in your church, you can humble yourself and let that mind of Christ be in you. And before honor is humility. So today, because Christ has come into this world and given us a pattern, we can emulate that. And we can humble ourselves today. And maybe we can take upon us the, the mentality, hey, you know what? I'm not from the wonderful state of California, all right? I'm just 
a humble servant of Jesus. That's all my identity has to be. Don't have to be the world's greatest whatever it is. I'm just a child of God. So if you're here today and you're not a child of God, we invite you. Because of the love of God that reached out to you at Christmas time, the Word became flesh. Jesus became human. Took upon himself the form of a servant. The form of humanity. And he died on the cross for you. So you can receive his gift. And so today we extend that invitation to you to enter into that eternal relationship with the God who loves you so much that he died for you and says, come unto me. He invites you. He loves you. No matter what you've done, he will forgive you. So today, run to those arms, those outstretched arms. They're free of nails now, so he'll embrace you as the story of the father and the prodigal son. He'll exalt you and honor you, even after all you've done. So you can come to him because he loves you. Will you receive Christ today as your Lord and Savior? I trust that you will. For those that already have, let's remember to walk humbly with our God.